Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Judith Lowe and discussing advanced care directives. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yes, thank you for asking me. Um, I'm the Sustaining Independence and Wellbeing Project Officer down here in the Active Aging team at the City of Onkaparinga. That means I do a number of directives for you know, community dwelling adults, a number of different projects, and the Advanced Care Directive work was part of a strategic grant from SA Health that came in under my wing. And what is an Advanced Care Directive? In essence, it's actually a legal form. So it enables you to make your future life and health choices known. It's very broad, it can cover healthcare, end of life wishes, any sort of other personal arrangements, accommodation wishes. It came in in 2014 and sort of replaced three other documents that existed at that time that enabled you to make wishes in advance. They were the anticipatory directions, power of guardianship and medical power of attorney. So they wrapped all these three up into one and this is the advanced care directive form. So do you no longer need a power of attorney? So your power of attorney is your financial one and that stands on its own and is still a separate form. But there was also the medical power of attorney, which was only about make, enabling somebody else to make medical decisions on your behalf. So that's the form that if you've already got one and you're happy with it, you can keep it, there's no problem. But if you were to go back to your lawyer today and say, can I make one? They'd say, no, we don't use that form anymore. We now use the advanced care directive. So do you need to go to a lawyer? an advanced care directive? You can do it yourself. There's a DIY kit. Um, some people choose to use their lawyer because they can then also witness it to make sure uh, it's fully legal. Any of these forms do need to be witnessed. So you can complete it yourself, but you would need to find someone to witness it for you. If you haven't got it witnessed, does it mean it won't be acknowledged? I think our healthcare system would always want to acknowledge you put your wishes in place. However, would it stand up in a court of law if it came to that? Probably not. Same as a, a will. You've made your wishes known, but if it was um, challenged in any way, then it probably wouldn't stand up in a court of law. An advanced care directive is a legal document that in court would always be sided with. Yes, it includes some areas that are just wishes and values where you can really identify who you are as a person, what's important to you, and that can help guide the care you receive, whether it's during life or at the end of life. But it also includes a section which is a legally binding refusal of health care. So, you know, what many people in their minds would think of as the old do not resuscitate. Um, so that's probably the area that is the legally binding aspect that people may be concerned about. So what would be the point of making this directive if you've told your family what you want? Oh, big question. Um, a number of reasons. Within the document, you really get a chance to explore a depth of you as a person, what your preferences are, what would give you quality of life. And sometimes that's not a full discussion people have with their family. They have an abbreviated version. Um, and then when it comes to a difficult situation, there really isn't enough depth there for people to make a decision. This form also enables you to formally appoint substitute decision makers. So they're named on the form 
Um, in the event that you cannot communicate for yourself or you cannot have capacity to understand and provide consent, those are the people that your healthcare team will go to. So you can formally nominate those family members and that has a lot of advantages because you're quite clear about who can and who cannot have a say, which prevents a lot of conflict sometimes. Um, it also enables the wider uh, family and community to feel reassured. Um, they know who's nominated, they know who's had the discussion. Um, so there's, there's a lot of benefits to actually having it in writing rather than assumed. There's also a project that's been done by the Office for Public Advocates around substitute decision makers themselves and how potentially challenging it can be at a difficult time when you're under duress and your loved one is unwell to have to make these hard decisions and to remember what that conversation was and to have that confidence. And they really said that having it in writing, to have had it discussed and put down was invaluable. That meant they really could stand in their loved one's shoes and they felt reassured they were doing the right thing. Give an example of the kind of questions that are asked and the kind of detail would be required to make it clear what you want. Yes, so under the wishes and values section, you've got six different areas you can fill in. And then under the legally binding refusal, there's one section. You may fill in all or none of them. It's totally up to you what you fill in and how much depth you put. You can nominate decision makers or not. You can just leave it as your words on the page and that's what people need to go through. So there's actually a great deal of flexibility and that's part of the message we're trying to get out. Um, sometimes if you do go to a solicitor or paid lawyer, they will score some of these sections out and say they're not needed, don't worry about that. But really the power is for you to say exactly as much or as little as you want. So for example, one of those sections is um, accommodation preferences. In our project we've reworded things to make it easier, which in essence is where do you want to live? And we encourage people to work from a perspective that's not just a building. So initially people might say, not a nursing home. But then we have that discussion about what's the important things about where you live. Is it close to family? Is it where your language is used? Is it where you have access to outside? Is it about um, your dog coming to visit? What are the important things about where you would live, irrespective of the building, that would give you quality of life? So should those decisions be made in the future, people know you, you're a real person. You're not simply a patient. Who's the best person to help you write a care directive if that's what you want to do? It's a real process. And when people come to our workshops, I'm very upfront. You will not walk out of this two hours later with a fully, filled in, fully filled in form. What you're doing is starting to put some thought towards it, starting to organize your thoughts. The very first question we ask is what's most important to you in life? And that stumps some people at the outset. <laughs> um, but if you don't know what gives you quality of life, it's very hard later on to say you would refuse care because it doesn't give you quality of life. So the best person to fill in, and the only person who can fill it in, is you, while you have capacity. If you already have um, an element of dementia or you're in the midst of a mental health episode, that's not the time that you can fill it in. Sitting down with friends, coming together with a group of strangers, sometimes at the workshop is wonderful because there's no expectations. 
Um, and I encourage people to go away and take days and weeks to think about it and to be clear in their own mind before they approach their decision makers, especially if they're close family, because it might be challenging. And they should consider ahead of time, is that decision maker going to really be able to stand in my shoes? Do they share my views? Um, but even if you do have nearest and dearest, it doesn't necessarily mean they're the right people to be able to voice your wishes. You've mentioned the workshops a few times, so tell us a little bit about the workshops that you do, how they became to set up and um, the process of attending. So obviously this forum's been around since 2014 and in 2019 the government did a review known as the Lacey Review which looked at how well it was being taken up and the answer was not very well. So they made a lot of recommendations um, to change that and to raise awareness and one of those was the engagement of local government. So we came on board with a remit to promote understanding and awareness so that people had genuine choice about whether or not to fill in one of these forms to our older community. So the first thing we did was a survey to find out what the issues were. And what we found out was reflective of the Lacey Review, 75% of our older population that we surveyed either had not heard of it or had not completed it. And the majority of the people actually had the form in their drawer might have been there for years, but still hadn't done it. So there were obviously additional barriers. It wasn't just awareness. And when we looked into it, the barriers included things like functional literacy. You know, it is a legal form. It requires a high reading comprehension. Some of the examples given for text, for what you might put in your form, are long. They've got a lot of ifs and whens and buts. The sentences go around in circles, and people actually find them hard to to deconstruct and understand and therefore they find it hard to create their own sentences because it is a tricky topic there's lots of situations to consider so the approach we took was to bring people together where they could chat about it we provided lovely food because you definitely need that when you're talking about hard topics and we deconstructed the text into little prompts that they could pick and choose you know like making a jigsaw puzzle nice and simple we gave them some instruction about how to start with those values and wishes and really scaffolded their learning so that by the time they got to the hardest section at the end, they had some confidence. They knew what to do. We'd talk through all those issues about colloquial language. If you say, keep me comfortable, what does that actually mean? Um, so we did a lot of things in the workshop. Um, we also created some cards, which are visual and simple language base to give people ideas. If they're not words people, if they haven't been at you know, a university or an educational institute in 60 or 70 years, then sometimes the ideas are going to come from images and discussion, not from uh, complicated text. And the last thing we did was we encouraged people who had attended and succeeded to come back as peer facilitators. So we now have um, about 14 volunteers. They're people who've achieved it themselves. And they come back and they sit in on the workshops and they just chat to people and they give them that confidence that it can be done. They're very generous. Often they share the wording that they've used. They share their experiences. And that's really been a wonderful thing to see. So do the volunteers go out to people's homes? Or? We don't in this project. For us, we drew the scope uh, quite tight. There were people who'd been at one of our workshops who have wanted to come back. 
we provide them with online training to make sure that they're aware of all the little idiosyncrasies of the form and how to make sure we don't say anything that is um, not right to people. And then they come back with a staff member to those workshops, um, but they're very much part of driving it on the table with their small group of people. We haven't gone down the line of uh, allowing volunteers to go into hospitals, to go into homes, to do one-to-ones, because we do know from speaking to other projects in this space across the country that that can create some problems, um, that people feel burdened that they must assist someone to complete that ACD. We've centred our project as a community project. We're there to support people. We're doing it with them. We're not doing it for them. And we're definitely not saying that everybody must do this and must get over the line. So we kind of hold people's hands and we go some of the way along the journey. Yeah. And ACD is Advanced Care, care directive. directive. Just to make it easier Just, to stay. Yeah, that's right. I wish I'd known yes. that before. Sorry. <laughs> what, yeah. is the mo what are the motivators for people to attend the workshops? They're very varied. I would say, and that's why we do follow up and see if people have successfully completed. We give them a little text or phone call two weeks after, six weeks after, and we've found about 50% of people do, but it does depend on their motivators. So sometimes people come because they've been given a specific diagnosis, because they've seen a loved one who's had a diagnosis, who's gone into hospital. People may come because they are a frequent flyer, if you like, in and out of the hospital. And every time they go in, they're being asked to sign a do not resuscitate order. And that's the last time that you really want that form repeatedly put in front of you if you're dealing with a serious illness. So they would rather create their ACD, which can be uploaded, held online, held by their health professionals, and they don't have to discuss it every single time they enter. Some people go, come because of um, just a general interest. Um, we do fit a remit of making our workshops available for those who are 50 and above. Our primary demographic is 70 to 79 year olds. So depending on the age, depending on your life circumstance, people come with different motivators. Do you think that staying in your own home is a big motivator for creating a directive? for some groups. I've had some workshops where the minute we get to the accommodation section, everybody says, this is, this is what I must do. But then on our last workshop, we had a lovely older lady who had come in because she was in and out of hospital and not well. And she said, there'll come a time when I don't want to be at home. I know that, where it's going to feel unsafe. And I really want to be specific about what happens next. So she was at that later stage. Mm. So it does depend on the stage and age of the person who's coming in and out. And people share their different experiences of that. So yeah, it, it's amazing how different each group of people are and where they come with that. And do you find that the lines are blurred between just giving an overview for people to write their own directives and unconsciously persuading people to think about another way? We have to be very clear. We have to be non-judgmental. Again, that's part of the images. So we keep representing a diversity and part of how we carefully provided examples. So we also have examples that say, all oh, life is sacred. You know, we provide wording that says, I would like all healthcare offered, even if it 
leaves them with life-changing physical or mental disabilities. And we have individuals who come and say, that's me. I want you to do everything. Even if I'm in a coma, keep me there. And we just have a very non-judgmental space where we explore what are, what are your options? And that's what we're trying to give people is options. Are the workshops provided in other languages? At the moment, not by us. Um, and that's really because we're primarily meeting our demographic here in Onkapringa, which is 99% English speaking as a first language. However, we are aligned with a project that's working up around Port Adelaide, Enfield and Charles Sturt. And they're looking at those cold groups and our resources particularly the pictographic ones with a very simple language are very easy to convert and they're designed as templates. So if they want to swap out images, so it really represents a community and their language, then that's easily done. And we just do another print run. Mm. Uh, we also have a short video that we made uh, specifically for, to fill a gap, I would say. A lot of the resources are beautiful online at the moment, but they do feature people very seriously having a discussion face to face. And as we know, um, that doesn't suit everybody, particularly maybe doesn't suit some men. So our video is done from a perspective of side by side. It has a lot more activity in it. And that has subtitles, which again could be translated. And all the workshops are in person? They are at the moment. We have had a request to have them videoed, potentially for people who can't get there or for people who've come to a workshop and thought about it and want to revisit the material. But for us, the workshops, the discussion and the face-to-face, the, -face, the human engagement is what turns it into the valuable product that it is. It's not the pieces of paper. There is a toolkit already out there you can use. There are plenty of lovely videos, whether that's on the SA Health website or on the Advanced Care Planning Australia website. So if people can access all of those themselves, what they get from us is human contact. And it's helped to fill it in. You don't provide a JP or anybody to witness it and then. So if somebody does it while they're at the workshop, they can. We um, recommend a lawyer or a justice of the peace rather than you. There's a whole list of people you could use, but you know, your neighbor who maybe was a nurse in a past life and who can sign for your passport, this is slightly different. It really does require about 30 minutes with a justice of the peace or lawyer to make sure every section is initialed, that certified copies can be done. So we recommend sticking with those people who know how to do it well. We have a very lovely justice of the peace on our steering group and we have worked with um, the Royal Association of Justices down here. So we link people. We thought at the beginning of the project it would be quite quick we'd do a workshop and then they'd come back and we'd line up the JP and all would be done and dusted. And we learned quite quickly that was not the case. People take anywhere between six weeks to six months to really think about this document, to approach their substitute decision makers, their children, to discuss it. Um, so yes, we changed tack and went, we're not gonna organize the JP sessions, but we're going to link people and what we've decided now is obviously we're having to put on some extra sort of awareness from the JPs in terms of um, people rocking up because they're starting to see more people coming to a normal, maybe library, Justice of the Peace session with these documents, um, which take time. If you had a couple, that's an hour. So we're having some dedicated sessions now that we're you know, 
linking so, people to? So if they go to a JP, it's free? It is free, yes. If they go to a lawyer, they pay? They would have to pay, yes, it's a lawyer. Yeah. Social workers can also do it. There are a range of people, but yes, we've worked closely with the Justice of the Peace. They have additional training in how to do this. And the reality is if you have one done, you want copies. You want a copy to give to your doctor, you want a copy to give to your daughter or your decision maker, and they need to be certified, again, to be legal. So you might as well go to a Justice of the Peace. He can or she can do everything at once. Can you put in your advanced care directive that uh, you would like assisted dying? You, this wouldn't be able to be followed, is my understanding. We do have the Legal Services Commission on our steering group who help us with these knotty issues, as well as the end-of-life care team from SA Health. The final portion where you're talking about that binding refusal of health care you have to state both what you would refuse and the circumstance in which you would refuse it, as opposed to asking for voluntary assisted dying. So they're a little bit mutually exclusive at the moment. Also because the documentation and the process for voluntary assisted dying means that you need to ask a doctor three times, you need to ask when you have capacity, and you need to have a known terminal illness that's likely to result in death in the next six months. So none of those things are possible if you put it into an advanced care directive and you no longer have capacity or ability to communicate. So at the moment they sit completely separately. Having said that, I do have individuals who feel very strongly about this issue when they come to a workshop and the sorts of wordings they put in the wishes and values section is to say that should it be possible in the future, I would like to consider voluntary assisted dying. So it's, it's there. They understand that's that person's viewpoint, even though currently, legally, it could never be in the, um, the binding refusal. That's very interesting and a good way to sort of get around difficulties that we have at the moment. I think there is a lot of flexibility with what you write and that's where trying to get your head around that and how to word it in the way that really reflects your wishes is the tricky part. When you come to substitute decision makers, you also have um, the ability to have conditions of appointment on them. So you can nominate two different people and they must work together. Or they must talk to somebody else in your life that you haven't nominated but has valuable information about you, whether that's your faith, your sexuality, any number of things. So the more you look into it, the more you understand there is a lot of different ways you can use the form to reflect you as a person. And would you recommend that all local governments in South Australia were to take up this kind of project? I think it's really useful for local governments who provide aged care services because it is part of our responsibility to talk to the older people in our care about planning ahead. Every local council is different. They are resourced differently. They don't necessarily have the same staff or time, and we respect that. We work as part of a quad council, and we share all our resources and everything that we have. So what I would say to other local governments is we have information that can help you. It is valuable. It is part of our local government requirements under the Local Government Act to be that interim with public health and promotion. So it is part of your role, and um, beyond being part of your role in terms of the Local Government Act, what it is is an act of trust with your community. People then have confidence in you, 
It also really addresses all those issues of self-determination and autonomy for your older people. It says that you are not ageist. People get to define what they want for their lives and you are there to support them with it. So it has a really broader remit than just saying we're helping people to fill in a form. So I would encourage people, um, yeah, to do it. Wow. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Awesome. That was so awesome. We were doing these things. I learned so much. It's unbelievable.